Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. This podcast is one small part of a larger platform I've created dedicated to offering reflections on Islam, life, and mindfulness. I encourage you to visit makingsenseofislam.com to find a wide selection of articles, videos, other podcast episodes, and most importantly courses designed to distill the complexities of Islam's intellectual heritage into usable and practical tactics and strategies for day-to-day life. I'm also active on Making Sense of Islam social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, where you will learn about what's new and what's in the works. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. My guest today is Muna Abu Mirshan. Muna is an international comedian and MC who has performed, emceed, and produced comedy shows, competitions, and events in major clubs, theaters, and universities around the world since 2010. Muna is also a sought-after speaker for her experience using stand-up comedy as a transformative method for healing trauma and PTSD in various socio-political topics in the United States, Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. Muna has a master's in international development and is also fluent in English, German, and Arabic and performs in these languages. She is now currently working on her PhD. Muna became the first Arab and Muslim woman to perform stand-up comedy in the nation's most prestigious institutions, twice at the John F. Kennedy Center and Carnegie Hall. As an international producer, host, and headliner, Muna's average track record is in less than one week performing and or producing nine to ten shows spanning Palestine, Switzerland, and the heart of London's thriving comedy scene. Muna was a special featured guest honoring her self-produced tour on Islam Channel as a thriving female Muslim in global entertainment, which was broadcast to over 100 countries, uniquely impacting nearly every aspect of the comedy business, while also co-producing the first and only annual 1001 Laughs Palestine Comedy Festival in Ramallah, Bethlehem, and Jerusalem. In addition to regularly performing in North America, Europe, UK, and the Middle East, Muna is a sought-after headliner on the African continent. Muna was a featured guest on El Birnemig with host Bessim Youssef and twice headlined Comedy Central's Comedy Central present Stand Up at Wagif, filmed in Dubai. She was the first female to headline this revolutionary series produced by Viacom. Becoming a regular in the South African market, Muna just recently completed her second tour and is the first American, Palestinian, and Muslim woman in history to ever headline and host Africa's most significant comedy establishments, the Cape Town Comedy Club, Goliath, and Parker's Comedy Club. Muna also appeared on Expresso and numerous national radio programs discussing her tour and her comedy workshops. Globally, Muna launched Class Clowns, a stand-up comedy improv, spoken word, and writing workshop for kids and adults of all ages, in all environments, using the comedy club as a microcosm for leadership, self-expression, face-to-face empowerment, and healing. The workshop is currently running in the Chicago and Cape Town areas, Cape Town of South Africa. And as Muna says, quote, leadership isn't just the person on stage talking into a microphone. It's everyone around that person making sure the microphone is on and the person is seen and heard, end quote. To connect with Muna, please go to the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com forward slash podcast, 
where you can find her website, her social media accounts. If you listen to the entire episode, at the end, she will actually give you her email address directly so you can contact her. Please enjoy this conversation I had with Mona. Mona, welcome to the show. Hi. How are you? I'm great, thank you. So thank you for making the time. I really appreciate it. I know you're busy uh, from, you know, gig to gig. Uh, and I understand. And I actually want to get into that. But before we begin, I want to, I think I might have shared this story with you. But if I haven't, the first time I ever met Mona was in Switzerland. We were at this Concordia conference. I actually had never heard of you at all. So sometimes you meet somebody, you kind of like, you kind of know who they are. This was a total surprise. You performed and... Uh, you were one of the later performances. Your act was so funny that really? when, when we finished and I went back to my room uh, with my wife, I couldn't pray. Every time I'd start to pray, I'd think of one of your lines. <laughs> I'd start laughing. I'd have to get out of my prayer. I'd have to like calm down. Oh, I would start again. So I don't know, you know, if that's, if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that was my first it's interaction like with you. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> So and I really oh, I, I laughed that. I laughed that night so hard, uh, it was a, a healthy dose of laughter, and that's sort of where I want to begin is I want to talk about you know your your understanding of the importance of laughter stand up, uh, and you know how you came to this uh, let's just art how do you came to this art form. Awesome, brilliant! What a epic introduction! Can you do all of my introductions <laughs> from the future? Gladly, gladly. <laughs> oh my God, that's so lovely! You know, because wow. What a blessing. Um, so how I got started, I mean, a little bit of a backdrop, just so that, you know, your listeners have a sense of, of who I am and why comedy is so powerful for me is being a Palestinian American Muslim woman born in 79. So I often call myself Disney Muslim because I'm raised in a big city where there were lots of Muslims and you didn't become Muslim almost until after 9-11. So when I grew up in Chicago, they're like, oh, you're Muslim? Cool. When's Ramadan? All right. You know, it wasn't like this big thing of, and because I'm fair skinned, my mother had converted, you know, our, our, our religiosity was always second nature to the big thing in the room, which was being Palestinian mm, and the mm. weight of occupation and having been a kid and spent all my summers in the, in, in Palestine, you, you really get the weight of what freedom of speech is, um, that you have a responsibility. At, at um, 13, I knew I had a responsibility because I'm American. I'm part of the problem, and I'm the biggest victim, oldest victim right now currently in the world. So I, was, I instantly knew I had a responsibility on my shoulders. And I think that's a that's I think that's the burden of a lot of Arab Americans is we know we're responsible to fix the world and we're the ones who really get America's causing a lot of problems. So there's that dynamic, right? And then going through and, and really spending a lot of time in the fundraising and the charity and all the other stuff. My father ran a charity. So I, I really felt a lot of the, the, the marches for Palestine and all of these, there was such severity and significance and weight that I instantly was like, okay, I got to go study international law. I got to fix the world. I mean, clearly I'm a Palestinian American. That's what we're supposed to do. Uh, but I, it didn't feel good. It, it felt like you always, the, often it was like this debate of the smartest person in the room. 
And as I was even studying my, doing my master's in international development, the more you learn about the world, the more powerless you can feel. If there's this weight of, you know, do we fix the planet or, or do we deal with Myanmar? Like there's this, this like powerlessness. And I thought, okay, how can I, how can I impact people for good? And, and it, it came to me so late and it came to me in the way that I hope a lot of people will really trust. It came to me from my loved ones. It came to me from my family. I had, I came back from Namibia. And so Namibia is also a, Palest a Palestinian uh, similar story in that it was a British mandated state given over to an apartheid system and then it got its independence. So I was going there to look at post-apartheid urban planning. That was my master's thesis. And I had gotten back and I was working on that just feeling still kind of powerless and working in commercial real estate. And one day around Christmas, my sister said, Mona, you need to start doing comedy. I said, what, why? Comedians are idiots. Like, why would I want to do that? What, do you not respect me? And she's like, no, you're, you spend so much time making people laugh and doing all those accents. You just, that's just you. And I looked at my mother and I looked at my other sister and they're like, yeah. And I'm like, seriously? And it was such a shock because I thought that they were saying I wasn't smart, but really they, they were saying I was almost too smart, which was brilliant because most comedians that I've now allowed myself to embrace the identity of a comedian really are the modern day philosopher, court jester, and a roving reporter all mixed to one celebrity with some fancy eyeliner. So they, again, were so art, you know, intent about me being a comedian they got me comedy classes whether I liked it or not so it was like they were bullying me into my better self which is beautiful to be able to allow that in and that's really how how I got started into something that I never imagined I would and and I did it later than a lot of comedians a lot of comedians start this right out of college or in college sometimes they skip college and they start doing comedy in their 1920 I was 29 30 and I figured okay if I'm going to start something new and or add it to be like a nighttime gig, 30 is not a bad time to start something new. So why not? Does that answer the question? <laughs> yeah, form? no. I mean, there's you, you just laid the groundwork, I mean, I guess for the entire interview. So uh, one, one thing that you said that I I've, was on my in my notes and I want to pick up on right now is how the, the comedian today is, is the truth teller, is the philosopher. So I have found out that to be extremely true. I mean, I would much rather watch a smart stand-up routine than read the news because yes. I find that this, the, the, the comedian, is the stand-up is going to give me the raw truth. And I'm so sick yeah. of the truth packaged in all this PC stuff that sometimes mm. you're so confused you don't even know what's being told to you. But the, right. but the comedian is telling it to you very raw and also in an entertaining way that it sticks. And oftentimes I feel that they can get away with saying things that you can't in normal conversation absolutely so absolutely. and i think that might be maybe a misconception that people have i know in a lot of a lot of the routines that i've seen you do you always make it a point you do it in a funny way i mean i can't do it the way you do it but you always make a point about how you're not dumb you know you actually have a graduate degree and you know you were working and uh, and things like that i think a lot of people assume unfortunately that people that are in comedy are just goofballs or yeah. or, or have been goofballs uh, all the time so how, how then with all the stuff that you just said in that background and that, you know, that sense of responsibility, how, uh, how do you approach your material? You know, how do you, what inspires you? Well, I guess I understand what inspires you, but how do you actually then take the issues you want to discuss 
and then synthesize them down into actual jokes and and lines that you're you're repeating on on stage what's the process like so the process looks like um it's kind of twofold and the first one is i want i would like to hand this nugget to you anyone who is listening is to turn frustration into funny typically something that aggravates us like me often getting in fights with the wrong people like i often get in fights with like the bagger at the grocery store because I want to help and they won't let me help. And then they'll snap at me saying, I'm the bagger. And I'm like, come on. Like I realize I start <laughs> getting in fights with the wrong type of people. And then I'm like, wait a minute, hold on. If I was writing a sitcom, this, this um, inter interchange would be hilarious. Like a friend's episode of the, the, the one where Joey got in a fight with a bagger at the grocery store, that would be a scene so how can I turn a frustrating situation into a scene if I was a comedy writer instantly allows me freedom. I get out of like, I'm no longer triggered. I'm no longer in a defense mode. I'm no, I'm able to turn a frustrating situation into something funny. And then I can reflect on it because when he, when the bagger told me, he's like, no, it's, I'm the bagger. And he was special needs. So Haram, like, why were you even fighting with somebody who's special needs? But I wanted to help him, and he wouldn't let me help him, and I'm Palestinian, and we're supposed to help each other, right? But then he said, I'm the bagger. He kept saying, I'm the bagger. Even though all the, the groceries were piling up, and it was a three-hour trip, he was telling the truth. He is the bagger. That is his job. He's just establishing his boundaries. And then I realized, this is hilarious. Come on, Mona. So that's the first thing, is anything that, that really make, makes me mad makes me laugh because it's still an emotion. And then the second thing is when I learn something that's a hard truth, like I was reading this beautiful book that was written about the prophet, peace be upon him. And, you know, the setup was why are prophets sent? How are prophets sent? And as I'm reading these, these major philosophical or, you know, intellectual declarations of why, instantly my comedian mind thinks of, of like counterpoints like there was a there was a statement saying you know um often our prophets are showing up and they don't they do their work out of the service of the goodness of, the, of their heart and and what god will provide and then i was thinking about like how i would see this as i've got some comic friends that are lazy bummed they're saying yeah i'm just doing this out of the goodness of my heart you know this sarcastic i've got this sarcastic ear where I can take some some beautiful information that I've read or news that are statements of truth and I counter it and I don't know how why I do it how I do it maybe it's me having been a you know a sarcastic person my whole life that's where I also pick up information I don't watch other comics that's a key I don't watch other comedians anymore I, I did kind of watch some of the old ones and every once in a while I'll pop back but the comedians that have impacted me are the ones that were they were they were uh, hiding the medicine in the food. They were the ones pushing the envelope. There's a difference between your Kevin Hart's and um, uh, let's say Kevin Hart and uh, some of the other comics that are, oh, um, what's his name? I can't remember his name. Eddie Murphy. They're, they're zany actors who aren't necessarily, no offense to them, really saying something with social commentary. Whereas... The, the other comics like George Carlin, he was saying something with his, he was a wordsmith or you have Richard Pryor. He was saying, once Richard Pryor went his, through his evolution after the first 10 years, if you look at his whole career, the first 10 years of his of Richard Pryor's life, 
he was the actor. He was playing a role. Then he went through his awakening and his very spiritual awakening. Then he started speaking his truth. And that's where I've, I've gravitated towards is if I couldn't be an international lawyer, then I'm going to stand on that stage and I'm going to utilize the microphone for power. And I'm going to impact them by hiding the medicine in the food. When I tell, tell a joke about my dad and, and dealing with school, I, and I make fun of him with his accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that leans you in. And then I say, oh, yeah, you go, Jesus Christ is Mona. We are Arab. How do you not know algebra? We invented algebra. <laughs> so the kid, right? So then the person who leaves the room, no matter what ethnicity they are, no matter what education level, their subconscious now knows, oh yeah, Arabs invented algebra. They, you know, they're taking that away whether they like it or not. Just like there were certain things in your that in your ear you take and you, you know, forgive me, but you couldn't pray because you were playing back what you had heard. I take that opportunity and that's why a lot of my academic work uh, does tie into the subconscious, the the mind. How powerful is the mind? Really, as as um, as simple as this is, a stand-up comedy is a luxury item that isn't afforded in lots of the world. I use that powerfully because one mic, one person on the stage with whatever they're saying, I can implement how you. I can impact how you feel, how you think. I am a mass manipulator, and I know it. And I take that with a precious gift. So that does that answer the question? It's a very again long answer, but no, no, it's um, it's beautiful. Yeah. I, I love, I just love you know pushing you just a little bit and then getting all this out. This is this is wonderful. I, I, when you you know going back to the to the bagger story, just to get down a little bit into the mechanics. So if you if you're an, if you have an inspiration like that incident happened or like you said you were reading a book or or something like that, do you then jot that down like in a notebook and and yeah. then that becomes a joke. Yeah. So I put it. I put it in my um, my phone as note, and then I'll I'll be chewing on it, and then I'll tell it to other people. Hey, Ma, I was at the grocery store. You wouldn't believe what happened. If I get a reaction out of her fast, okay, that's a good one. Or right, I'm keeping that. So then when I go do a set, I'll weave that new piece in the middle. I don't put it in the beginning of my set. I don't put it at the end. I put it in the middle, and I gradually see how people respond. And then with that stage time, I play with it more. And what ends up happening when I'm on stage is more will somehow come out of my mouth. Like when we were in Switzerland, I had been, the, the set you saw me do, I had been, I got there early and I watched everyone. I am, I love watching people. So I took pieces of information, but all of the stuff that I was really about that particular period in time, which was me creating material in less than 24 hours, I put all the new stuff in the middle. I didn't put it necessarily at the end where I need my reliable closing jokes. So those, the ones at the end of a set, typically comedians have worked on very hard for a long time and they know that they're good. I'll put the new stuff in the middle. Interesting. And, and you not wanting necessarily to consume too much of other comedians, is that for fear that you would end up imitating them? Or is that, is, are you just that period in your life is over and you're sort of on your own flow now? Brilliant. I, that, that's you, you, you got it spot on. If we're watching other comedians, then your subconscious happens to mimic their pattern. So there's a lot of comedians that I've worked with. Actually, one in particular, he works with Dave Chappelle solely. He sounds like Dave Chappelle. And that that's an, in my world, that's a no, no. If you want to really pave a way for yourself, especially because of my identity, I have to, I have to pave my own way. So I can, and Otherwise, I'm also consuming their material because that's the second thing you never want to do in comedy is accidentally tell someone else's jokes. 
And if it's this, in the subconscious, the punchline might just come out of your mouth that may have been a famous comedian and people can pick up on that. So that's the other. And also it's important that I, I go through the hard work of, of sculpting my voice, my voice. What is Mona's voice? How does that sound? It can't sound like a copy of, of a Dave Chappelle. So, yeah. Yeah, it reminds me, um, there's a, a famous uh, author slash historian who I, I like his, his writing. His name is Shelby Foote. And um, Shelby Foote was a contemporary of William Faulkner. So William Faulkner was asked, you know, what do you think of Shelby Foote's writing? And he said, well, his writing is great if he would just stop trying to be like Faulkner. So oh, yeah. I think that in, in art, you, you kind of need the artist to inspire you. I get inspired by artists. I mean, I get inspired by people like you, even though I'm not a comedian, but although sometimes, to be honest, when I'm giving the sermon, I do feel like it's stand up. But, you know, that's another it is. It is. <laughs> that's another thing altogether. You're, because when people are laughing, they're listening. Uh, but I do. I do. I have to take inspiration. But at the same time, I'm always fearful that I don't want to be like a carbon copy. I need to find my own voice. Yeah. When did you know then? I, I guess I'm asking for just personal selfish reasons. When did you know, OK, I can let go of the crutches. I can let go of the training wheels. Um. You know what was so funny is I've never had them because I, you know, okay, let's just say the truth is I think by 2015, I had started in 2010. By 2015, when I started performing internationally and I realized that my, my Arabic, my Arab American uh, material that I was just building off of here, I had nowhere to test it because there's no Arab American comedy club. I could just test with family. And then I had to go on tour and perform on a stage in Ramallah, not sure if I should do everything in Arabic or everything in English, or if I should do Khabisa, where it's all mixed up. <laughs> so I'm like, you know what, just trust my gut. I'm just going to go as I delivered it in the States. I'm going to try it on stage here. And it worked so well that after I was done, I had almost a very personal, emotional moment where I finally felt like I belonged. That's, that's how I've never had training wheels because all the famous comedians couldn't talk about what it was like to be a Disney Muslim. You know, or all oh, the only thing about Islam we were taught was you should pray and uh, don't show your arms. Like there was, there was because they didn't have <laughs> Muslim schools here in the eighties in Chicago. We, they were like, there were so the, the young Muslims now they have it all where we didn't have an app to let you know when the prayer was. We had to follow our grandma around when she looked at the sun sometimes who knew, or we had to go to the masjid. So there was there there was a life that I had grown up living and picking up all the idiosyncrasies that I couldn't share on stage. So when I was on stages doing comedy in the normal American environment, I was it was almost like I was a guest in my own home. So I, I never had training wheels. And it was a few comics. I was like, I like how they do it. And I like how they do it. I even asked the only other Arab American comedian who was a female who was doing it before me who I really wanted to be my mentor, didn't want to be. She refused. And she, frankly, I don't think she, she to this day, can't stand me. And that, that was, alhamdulillah, that was to my own benefit that it made me be a fighter. And I ended up, my career has taken a, a trajectory higher and faster, I think, because I never had real training wheels. But emotionally, it affected me. So, Mona, you in the beginning, you said, you know, you grew up with this great sense of responsibility. I, I, I definitely understand that. I'm not Palestinian, but Arab American. So mm -hmm. I and I think we're about the same age. So I kind of, you know, we, we have the I grew up without the app, you know, the same the same thing. Yeah. Do you feel that your current 
craft, you know, your ability to stand on stage, make people laugh, but give these messages. It, do you feel more empowered than like the work that you were doing in Africa with your with with development? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm able to transform people who didn't know they needed it, wanted it. Um, the impact I have, I mean, in one week, I have done workshops that are just teaching stand-up comedy um, to a networking group of very successful um, high-end business owners here in the States, lawyers, doctors, they all came to the, they're part of this networking group and a friend of mine invited me in and they had huge transformations in just one workshop. Then I do it with kids who, who was brought into their classroom and they, you know, you had um, kids that were special needs, kids that had speech impediments and also like honors kids. So I'm able to transform those who didn't know they needed it or wanted it or feel this lightness of their little kid coming out. I mean, I'm I'm almost like the little kid shaker. I'll, I'll wake you up and bring out your little play, your little kid to come out. And I was not able to do that feeling so good both before and after and during my work when I was dealing with um, the poverty line and I would, the stuff that I was doing with my master's, it, it didn't man, I just feel, so, I feel good. And so do the people I engage with feel good when I'm at work and, and who wouldn't want that? So speak to us a little bit about the impact. I, I, you've mentioned that you've do, you do a lot of work with, with kids, with youth, and you yeah. do these workshops. Give us, yeah. give us like, what's one or two stories that really, you know, just brought you to tears to think that you've had this kind of impact on people? Okay, there's two key ones. So um, the fir my first workshop and my most recent one, my first one was in 2011. And within that workshop, it was just a friend of mine invited me into her school and we started doing these stand-up workshop classes and the, the reading um, allotment of, of the curriculum of the day. So I was coming into reading, I teach them improv, I teach them stand-up comedy, comedy writing, journaling, self-expression also almost like i like kind of teach them how to be like little reporters what, what's funny about your mom what's funny about your teacher what's funny about your homework and gradually the kids start going in and allowing their imagination to come out there was one girl her name's sienna she was so adorable and it's a classroom of six uh, i'd say no no more like 30 to 40 kids typically the average is african-american latino are the majority minority would be white uh, and then Sienna had a speech impediment, severe speech impediment that she used to go to speech class in that window. But she was having so much fun in our stand-up class that she asked her speech teacher to come to her stand-up class instead of her going the other way around. And then as within, I'd say, six weeks of this class, we kind of ran it throughout the whole year, Sienna had said something. And I said, hold on, what did you just say? And it, the whole room stopped and listened Sienna said, then I had her repeat it, and the whole room died laughing. They were laughing so hard. I'm like, I see you, Sienna. You're hiding all those. You're so secretly funny. You just don't want them to know. And she starts giggling. From that moment on, she was the most verbose person in class. That the, At the finale, the, the show, she was the MC. She hosted the show where at the beginning, wow. she could barely get a word out. So wow, that was wow. such a huge transformation right there That was that I often... I know I stand with love that Allah's watching her wherever she goes and that this class impacted her because she said it, her family said it, her speech teacher said it. It was awesome. Then 
the second example is this workshop that I did most recently where I was co-partnering with a, um, a neighborhood in Chicago and the, the workshops I did in South Africa. When I came back and we were done with the workshop, I was coming in for the finale because the, the two kids, the two groups of kids that I was doing, um, one was the honors kids and one was the, the difficult ones. You know, I call them class clowns, but really they're, they're kind of more difficult to teach. Um, they had both said, all right, now it's time for you to do stand up, Mona. I said, okay, tell me what you want. And they said, all right, do a, um, we want you to do a book report, but do it in stand up form, Pinocchio. I said, no problem. So I read their book, which I learned a lot about Pinocchio. You should read that again, by the way. It's a good story. Um, and I, and the morning as I'm driving into the school, I get a call from, um, from one of the teachers and it says that one of the students in the cohort, not the two classes, but the whole uh, sophomore class had committed suicide mm. and right. And so now I'm walking in to the, to, I'm walking into the reason why I do this in terms of teaching kids comedy. It's because of one of our fallen angels is Robin Williams. And my engagement in the comedy world is why are comedians not living long? Either they die of their vice or they die by their own hand or they like Bernie Mac die of exhaustion. What is going on in Hollywood that the, this is what's happening. The people who are bringing laughter to the world who are committed to do this for the love of the game. I mean, forget the money, but they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart. Why are they dying like flies? What's going on? So I, and I knew I'm like, okay, the angel Robin Williams, I'm honoring you. Um, I go in and I find out that the kid who had committed suicide was not only a, a child of, um, he was Latino. So typically as you, if you do any research on, on suicide, unfortunately it's a luxury item as well. Now it's penetrated into communities that are diverse, that are of color, that typically don't take this act. That's what's shocking. Number one, number two, um, this kid was the class clown. He was the funniest kid in school. He made everybody laugh. And mm. I said, okay, here we go. And I said, listen, and I, and the way we had the discussion, because I had been transparent with them the whole time, we could have deeper conversations about often comedy is a mask. We're often hiding our insecurities and making everyone else laugh. So look in, if someone is making you laugh, make sure that you tell them, you know what, you're amazing. And I allowed that openness, that open discussion and they, they, man, the questions that were coming from these young kids was about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I, it was such a blessing to be able to be there and be of service to these kids. And to, to I said, remember, guys, I'm, I've taught you the art of the microphone. When you speak your truth in a comedy way, no one could ever mess with your head and make you feel insecure about anything. And I, I believe that was the greatest transformation, both for me, both for you know my fellow comedians who suffer in silence often or suffer in laughter, as well as um, for those kids as they go on, I can imagine what's gonna happen with those that didn't speak up, that they knew that you know comedy is an outlet, but also comedy can be a mask. That's beautiful, beautiful. How many of these workshops do you run a year, by the way? Um, I try to limit it to uh, one for youth because I, I kind of want to follow the trajectory of the school and there's a lot going on from October to May. Uh, one to two, if it's a full year program, if it's these a one-off workshop, like a 90 minute workshop, I'll, man, I'll do as many as 10 a year at all. It really all depends. And it's all, it, nothing has been funded yet, except for my, the project that I did that married the South African with the Chicago case study that I'm using for my PhD, that 
was funded specifically, but everything else has just been whatever I can, whatever I can do, whatever I can pitch. And currently I'm actually teaching now in two different institutions, one for adults and then one for kids. So my, my goal with God's will is to get many more of these workshops going. I'm still doing case studies for veterans because veterans now and PTSD comedy is a powerful tool for healing and freedom. And then the other one is going to be um, for the elderly, for Alzheimer's and dementia, because when you add in comedy and play, they have a better standard of care and living because there's there's essentially role playing going on. So right now, my workshops are still at the baby phase, the, the not, not incubation phase, but I'd say more like beta testing and getting this all, inshallah, like it'll be running globally. It'll be uh, workshops that are being part of the educational curriculum because of what I'm noticing on how they're showing up and they're really serving a purpose of, you know, speech, right? P- public speaking, writing, um, also the, using the, the comedy club as a business model. And, and so there's just so many different variables that happen. It just, it's just taking time because I'm just doing it by myself. No, uh, inshallah, it gets funded and, and, and gets lift off. <laughs> Actually, you just reminded me of something with PTSD and all of that. In, in the classical world, there were, uh, some Islamic endowments, some Islamic awqaf that actually paid for people to go to hospitals and sit in like the common area and just tell funny stories and nice stories. So that, really? Yeah, so the people that were recovering from whatever ailment or if they're elderly and they're about to die, you know, they're just surrounded by this nice, nice environment. So, you know, you're reviving that, that tradition. That's, uh, that's, that's beautiful. Oh. Now, you, you, you've spoken a lot about Palestine. Um, mm-hmm. What is it like to perform there? Uh, to a largely it's awesome. Arab, Arab audience. <laughs> it's awesome. It, 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 my understanding, so I've done it three years now, and it, the way it kicked off, which was pretty cool, is that the United States consulate in Jerusalem, they were doing these uh, cultural bridge, you know, festivals where they would bring in movies that were, you know, bringing the cultures together and showing how awesome America and Arab, Palestinians really get along. And it was pitched, why don't you bring a truly American-Palestinian art form, which is comedy? And the U.S. consulate was like, yes, 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 all over it, 2014. Oh, wow, interesting. Yeah, they loved it. They loved it so much. And there was so much press. And there was workshops so that wherever we went, in, whether they were in camps or whatnot, or sometimes they, there's even little theater companies throughout the West Bank, we would come in and bring comedy because they were doing acting, but they weren't doing modern American-British-style stand-up. And the wave of attention, like, it really brought all this positive energy into Ramallah, Jerusalem, and Bethlehem, that when we left, I, I kept hearing, we miss you. There's this dip now in energy. We, we miss you. And what I saw was, A, the U.S. consulate loved it so much because they felt, they felt like they finally belonged. There was just this connection. And two... The, um, the, the Palestinian community is consuming American media. So even when I went to Khalid, to a small, to a Hebron, small town next to Hebron, they knew who a lot of these modern comedians are, Dave Chappelle. They, they watched it all. They pretended like they didn't speak English until we started asking them questions about the comedian. And then, boom, they could speak English. Great. So it was so cool to be back in a new way. I, I essentially grew up in the West Bank half, you know, like all my summers were over there. So part of my year was over there, but to go back as a powerful woman comedian and do this art form that is 
in ways has a history in the Arab world, right, of the of the performer, right? The male performer would do a one-man show, and that, that's not new to that part of the world. But it's it's new in this in a different way where you're kind of intersplicing um, resentment, right? You have little resentments that are coming out in joke form. It was super beautiful to be able to, ha like, have a marriage of both of my identities on that part of the world. But the, the problem was is we were getting too much attention. So what, what is kind of secretly understood is the Israelis, uh, the Israeli media did not like how well this was going. So the U.S. consulate for the 2016, right before we got there, a week before we got there to that um, <laughs> to the 2016 festival, they pulled out. They wanted no affiliation with us because they couldn't, because it, it became too dip diplomatically hot. Plus it was an election period of time, but still people came out in groves. And now you've got a lot of young comics in Palestine that are coming up hot and heavy. And, and it's really a great way to allow them to say what they're feeling relative to the news in a safe way. And it, it's so beautiful too, because you'd think Palestinians are in the Arab world, but freedom of speech is just go ahead, do, say what you're gonna say. You know, it's it's all in the heart of comedy, no big deal. The last thing that was that blew me away, this is the thing that really got me. I was like, why isn't anyone, the first tour, why is anyone not making a big deal about the fact that I'm the only female on the lineup? And I, I was like looking around, why? And then my dad happened to be in, there and I'm sitting with my dad. I'm like, dad, how come no one's talking about me being a Palestinian, a female? He's like, Mona, you're a Palestinian woman. Palestinian women do lots of things. And I really, and I, it was almost like, um, I was in the twilight zone. I realized my female identity as a female Arab Muslim woman had been morphed and created by the American television. I had, to, I had just finally got awake to who I actually am versus who I thought I should be. And that really freed me personally from 2015 on. Interesting, interesting. So actually, that's a great segue. What what kind of pushback do you get being a, a Muslim woman, Arab Muslim woman in, you know, our community, our community being sort of the English-speaking Muslim community, whether it be in this country or, or elsewhere? Have you received pushback? I, I Just a little. Not, alhamdulillah, like not too much. Um, I once did a joke in San Francisco about... Khadija and how amazing and it wasn't even a joke it was honoring that she was such a powerful figure um we have documentaries about her I mean, we were sorry we have documentaries about everything else but her why is that and I was saying how awesome she is I got a little pushback you don't ever make fun of the prophet I'm like okay well, well I didn't make fun of the prophet but that's fine um the only other thing I've gotten has been don't make fun of Israelis and sending them back to to Europe but in general, across the board, across the board, everyone is super supportive. Everyone um, knows I'm always coming from love because I don't have this very heavy-handed um, protesting. I don't talk a lot about politics or religion, right? Because I was avoiding that. That's the whole reason is I want it to be a lovable, engaging, um, thought-provoking experience, but that leave people feeling good. And that's what I radiate out. And I think that the, the I just I think that more than anything, people want to know what's going on with Arab Muslim women or want to know my perspective. So they tend to lean in, whether it's an all black comedy club on the south side of Chicago or it's uh, an Israeli um, uh, wedding shower on the north side. Everyone's like, oh, I want to hear her her perspective on what's going on. And they typically are like, oh, my God, she's just as silly. She's like a cartoon. And so that's in essence, that's really what I've been getting back. 
So uh, one of uh, another story, which is the second time I saw you perform, I had witnessed the first performance in which you very easily and very, um, uh, very blatantly, you know, roasted some people in the audience. So the second time, and I saw you, I was like, oh, Mona's going to perform. I just kept praying. I was like, please, I hope she doesn't pick me. I hope she doesn't pick me. I hope... And you pick this one guy, he was wearing this like, you know, very blue suit. And I mean, I have to admit it was pretty funny, but I kept praying. I don't want to be roasted. Uh, and what's that like? It's just spontaneous. You just pick people out. How have people reacted? I mean, I'm very, I think I'm shy. People say I'm not, but I mean, I was, I was literally praying to, you know, oh. everything that is holy. I was like, I was like, the next time one is going to perform, I'm going to wear all black. I'm going to just sit in the back and, you know, make sure that I'm not, I'm not noticed and just enjoy the show. What's that like picking people out and, you know. Oh, so what's beautiful is you, I can read their energy. So if they're in a playful mood, you'll see it in their face. If they've worn an outfit that's distinguishable, they want to be distinguished. So I have to celebrate that. It has to be in a lovable way. So that the guy who I picked out was wearing a very loud suit, remember? Yes, he was. Like, he was. He was. <laughs> right. So he chose that, meaning he he's like, I'm going to be different tonight, you know? Because remember, one of the things that's really key is comedians see millions of people, millions of faces, and they start to catch the patterns. You guys see just one of me. So I know the pattern. I know when I when a woman comes in the front row in Chicago in the middle of winter and she's wearing her uh, the shirt that shows off her shoulders. I'm like, oh, I see you shoulders. You're coming out here like it's the summer, you know? And then she's like, eh. like there's an, I try to do it in an empowered way by utilizing what they clearly are saying. Hey, 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 pick me, pick me. I want to be different. Interesting. So there's an art to it. Yeah, yeah, there really is. And okay. I study the room. I really do. I get for a, a, your classic comedy club. I get there very early and I watch people sit down. I ask, where is the bridal parties? Are there birthday parties? Uh, and if they're all women, okay, I know that they'll typically, if, especially if they're thin in America, they come in and they want to start drinking fast, but they won't be eating. So the alcohol kicks in fast and they become a bully. They start wanting attention. They become rowdy. They become difficult because, right, the alcohol starts to take away the inhibition. Anyone in the United Kingdom knows that. Everyone's all proper until that liquor starts to kick in. So as soon as I see that they're coming, I give them all the attention quietly before the show starts. Then if I'm hosting the show, I start giving them so much attention that the whole room celebrates them. And then I tell them, cool, now you're going to be quiet, right? And I establish the power. I have to keep the power with me. And that's part of me being growing up into my voice is being okay, telling people to sit down and shut up because I'm the one in power. I'm the one with the mic. I've earned that right. But sometimes in a comedy club, the alcohol could start to open up the gateways of people wanting all that attention. I've got to be able to manage that. And by doing, by getting there early, I can manage through very, like it's a, it's a truly an art form. I, I can tell when a table hasn't been gotten enough service because they're not paying attention, right? You never want to go against man's greatest desires, females, you know, or love connections. You don't ever want to go head to head with food. So performers tend to hate, going up when food is getting served because you want to eat. You're not hearing when you're eating at the same time. So remember I said, what I do is mass manipulation. I've got to keep an eye on all of that. Now, have you ever just completely bombed? Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> Funny enough, this exactly one year ago today, literally today in South Africa, I went up there. I was getting up on stage probably right now as we're speaking, and I, I was bombing. And I'm like, what's going on? What's why? Like nothing was hitting. And to the point where I looked over at one of the audience members and I got this horrific look. I'm like, okay, all right, this is for me. And that's how I treat bombing and how I treat this art form where it's the totally unknown. I can do the same jokes in, in three shows on the same day in the same city at the same comedy club and get three totally different reactions. All of that insecurity, um, fear. I mean, think about it. you're doing the same job every day, but it's, you're going to get a different reaction. It elicits a level of, okay, where, how do I get grounded? How am I stable? How do I know myself? It feels like a candle in the wind that really brought me back to Islam. That brought me to my grounding point. That brought me to really understanding the root of Ole. Ya Allah. I, I surrender the microphone to you. So there's a lot of my spirituality that only got heightened as my career got heightened so that, that my prayer, my all of that stuff is so in alignment with me being a servant of God. This is this comes off as ah, I'm just a comedian. No, otherwise that microphone will be taken away from me, and I know it. So that does that kind of answer the question on how how I handle bombing and well, no, no, I mean why but, I know bombing but, is here to serve me. But you just you just took it in a totally different direction. I mean, so you're basically saying that your spiritual connection that's emerged from comedy is actually just keeping yeah. you grounded. And, and it keeps me grounded and lets me fly higher. Is it fair to say that it sort of keeps your ego in check? Yeah, because the ego, the ego, once you, once you start getting really good, the ego can limit the blessings in the room. Cause you're like, yeah, I got this. I can do this. And then you bomb. And then what ends up happening when, when the human being is in a stress environment, it's fight, flight, or freeze. And when something isn't going my way, when I'm bombing, I have those choices, right? Fight. I'm going to fight the audience. I'm going to freeze up or I'm going to, I'm going to run, right? That's all I got. Sure. But because I've surrendered the microphone to Allah, I flow and I start making it funny. So I don't walk on stage ever now saying, yeah, I got this. Oh, you know what? Forget you, dude. Like, no, no, no. I don't go head to head with the audience. You never blame the audience. They paid to be there. You're their servant. You're their entertainer. So my, yes, my spirituality allowed me to get out of the way because I got so good that now like a samurai, I can, I can flow with whatever's coming at me in a three-dimensional way. Whereas before it was like a, just a, your conventional straight up battle. I don't, it's hard to explain if, does that make sense? No, it does. I mean, it, you, you're just kind of making me pause and think. Uh, w can you... Well, a lot of people think that religion, particularly Islam, inhibits certain things. One of the things I'm trying to explore through these interviews and on the podcast and this platform, etc., is that Islam really unleashes... It can unleash this great power that you have within you. I mean, that's how I feel oh, personally. Yes. Amen. Can you talk yep. about that? Because I think coming yes. from you, that's going to be, I mean, that would be a very powerful message. So it's beautiful. Um, let's just give you the backdrop is like I said, I grew up in the States with no formal, like my dad immigrated here and a lot of the Palestinian and I, 
my father grew up down the street from the tomb of Abraham. You're getting really close to the root of Islam when you're down the street from the tomb of Abraham, right? Sure. My, my dad's village is, is uh, almost 4,000 years old. You have, they, they said it's called, Abu Yunus, Yunus was in that area. So it's really the soil where a lot of prophets have walked. My father came here though, because of the Palestinian conversation in that period of time was pan-Arabism. So when I was raised here, there wasn't an Islamic conversation. It was just, you know, freedom of Palestine. So when I would go back and forth to the Middle East by myself, it was this cultural norm that you start praying. I started praying before my father ever did. My father was like, like what's going on with her? She's praying, <laughs> you know? She's mm -hmm. 16 years old, this girl's praying. Uh, she, what, are they, what are you praying for? When I'm like, well, dad, I'm fat, I wanna lose weight. I'm praying to Allah to help me lose weight. He's like, okay, fatty. No, like it's just, it's very comical what goes on, right? Sure. But yeah. with that, my journey from 16 was between me and Allah not me and the institution because the institution i hate to say it like this let me down the institution get, never gave me anything which is both a blessing and a and a challenge and a journey so that when i in this last year me turning 40 me having now a decade in comedy there was these there was these expectations that hadn't been met yet and i started getting very stressed on top of which in 2019 was a lot of trauma had shown up in the family. It started go. It started getting. It felt like out of control, to the point where it shoved me back on my knees. And every time I prayed, I cried. I released. I heard messages. I was like, "Oh, alhamdulillah, okay, okay." There was all this healing that started showing up as I started showing up on the prayer rug. I mean, if you want to look at it from that perspective. There was the miracles are happening. If you want to look at from the straight up American perspective of just you're 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 um, meditating five times a day, you can only get in so much trouble before the avan goes off and you got to go put your head on the floor. Or you can look at it from the yoga master. You're putting your third eye on the ground. You're getting yourself grounded. The, or you look at it from um, a, an athletic perspective. If you, if you actually break down the, the 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 really the syncopation of the salah, you're working on different parts of the body, almost like a, a Thai massage. I could break this down in 17 different ways from Sunday. Why? Because I'm smart and I really like to know something. In the end of the day, the Salah got me so grounded and allowed me to heal and allowed me to go inward and allowed me to hear messages. It allowed me to connect to my source and disconnect the thing I've been seeing globally with Muslims, especially Muslims that have gone to the, to the West, is we've superseded our parents and dogma before God. So that we're praying out of fear. We're praying not knowing what we're saying. We're praying because, oh, well, that's just what you do. You shouldn't. But if you're like praying because it frees you, if you're praying because it heals you, then you're gonna never not. Does that answer the question? No, it's it's not just an answer. I mean, I think it's very beautifully put, um, you know, I think you've you've articulated what what I'm trying to to get across to people, which is, for me, this is uh, this is like fuel. This is like what fuels yes. the creative process. Is what fuels my happiness. Is is what fuels yes. my sense of I'm I'm free and I'm liberated and um, it, it gives me a, a compass, you know, a guide, so I'm not you know tripping over my ego and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I, I've never I never feel that. Oh, I can't do that because I'm a Muslim. I, I never. I mean, other than if it's like just something that's flat out haram, which should be doing anyway. But I meant from the creative right. point of view, I think that's really, really important. And um, 
I hope that I I mean w- when I see you perform I I feel that maybe it's hard for me to articulate in words but I feel you know you're coming from a genuine place I, I listen to a lot of stand-up and I don't always feel that the person is genuine um, right right they're acting they're often acting yeah you know and it's just like they're performing and it's you know they're getting the laughs but but when you get somebody that's genuine coming from a genuine place and like you know to go back to what you said in the beginning you know it's like philosophizing it's like the modern day philosopher yeah. just a truth teller I think that it, it can be more powerful than you know, a thousand sermons that I can give. And uh, I think that's an important message. Now, well, how people interpret your sermons end up going in a subconscious and coming out in a way, alhamdulillah, you're never going to know. You're never going to know if someone in that audience is at a water cooler and some guy says something and your words come out of their mouth. No, sure. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm going to, you know, give up the, <laughs> the sermon. And just, no, no, like, but I, I, you don't often get that feedback. But I mean, because of because of the way when you laugh, when people are laughing and you're, you're so like on point. And I said, because of the, your medium, you can say things that I can't say in the mosque. I mean, true, setting. true, true. So true, true, true. it's powerful. So it, it reminds me of the way I studied. So when I studied, it was very lively. There was give and take. There was argue, you know, a positive argumentation, like a Socratic method where you try to like stump the, yes. the sheikh and you can like argue yes. back. And well, you know, there's this perspective. There's this other method that says this. How about this? And it becomes and all of that stuff stuck. All the dry stuff yeah. doesn't stick because you like it's like in one ear out the other. But when you're like processing yeah. it with all your being, you know, it, it sticks yeah. and. And I think you're helping to provide that. So I think, you know, kudos to you. I think that's awesome. And I'm really happy that you're doing you're doing that. Just maybe to segue to something a little bit just more pedestrian. What is it like being on the road? Like how many times are you on the road? How do you cope with that? You know, what do you have like any practices that help you? Like not, I mean, I travel a lot and I hate it. it like it just, it just, I, really? I, I'm always off kilter and, you know, jet lag and this and that. So I'm always looking for like ways of like mitigating that. How do you deal with that? What is it like being on the road for you? So, um, inshallah, I'll be on the road more. For me, I love, I love flying. I used to work in an airport when it was my first job. I worked at Lufthansa. Uh, I live by an airport. I get, I get to the airport two hours early. So I, cause it gets perfect people watching. I love watching people. <laughs> okay. That's my favorite job. Okay. So it's your material. Um, yeah. Good. Yeah, and, and it's this, it's also, the, the, the airport to me is like, um, it's like your, your, it's like your neighborhood in the sky. People from all walks of life will be showing up that you never would have imagined, and you can watch and understand. I also think Allah and, and the angels speak to me when I'm in different parts of the world. Like, I've shown up in different places. I'm like, okay, Allah, I need guidance here. You know, this this audition I have, like uh, I landed in Vegas uh, on Sunday morning. I had this huge audition in Vegas and I'm like, OK, you know, I know I know you're with me and I I'll look up and I'll walk and I'll see somebody right up ahead and I'll say a Chicago Cubs shirt or I'll hear boarding to Chicago. And I'm like, oh, Allah, you're with me. So like I, I it feels like angels are all around me when I'm when I'm navigating in the travel space. But in terms of getting myself grounded and centered so I'm my most powerful self so that I'm not wasting energy in the commute, in the transit, in the, the lines and all that, you know, I, I obviously I wake up very early. I do, I'll do like the hajjid prayer. I'll get up early. I get myself super grounded. I know what I'm going to say so that I'm not thinking. And I allow myself to just flow. So by the, you know, the earlier I'm there or, 
um, drinking a lot of water. People, you'd be surprised how little or how often people are dehydrated. So there's that. And also just, be, I feel like I'm part of a global community when I'm moving around all that time. But I also, I don't know if you have a wife and you have a kid or that's a different thing. Cause now you're managing multiple things at the same time. You're on your phone, but I'd say if anything, watch people because people will start to give you signs. If you're thinking about something, a blessing with an answer will show up right in front of you by the person who walks right by you or the message you suddenly hear someone else say, you know, like I was like, should I, should I consider more work in New York? And then someone will say, yeah, New York, this, I'm like, oh, okay. So maybe that's a yes, you know? So it's, it's almost like a fun game for me. And uh, per month, you know, roughly how many, how many days out of a, a typical month would be a typical travel schedule for you? Um, so things have, I'd say, so all of 2019, you're, I was traveling on average three times a month because I was also teaching classes. But now that I'm more grounded in Chicago, I think it's going to be only during the weekends because that's when the shows, heavy shows are. Okay. And I'm going to be working on my, my PhD. So we're going to see, you know, and sh- I keep saying inshallah that I'll be traveling more and when I'm traveling, being as efficient as I can. So the the the, do, the tours that do take the most out of me are the ones that are like five week tours. When I was doing all of Africa or, or all of South Africa, or the Middle East, Switzerland, and then the UK. When they're big, long chunks of time, that's actually harder because you're carrying so much stuff. But I'm hoping to be traveling two, three times still a month because I just enjoy it so much. <laughs> what, what's your PhD program, Una? So it's going to be um, the comedy and healing, really looking at all that research that I did for those those comedy workshops. And also when you see heavy, and it's in history, it's been proven, when you see heavy amounts of comedy in one area, it's actually hiding the infection underneath. So that's, I'm really at the beginning stages now Good. Of, of all that stuff. So one, but, one yeah. piece of advice, uh, because I did my PhD also on the move and you know traveling and all of that, is oh. just to uh, back up frequently. So I thank would, you. Yeah, okay. you, you never know what will happen to your laptop or your material, but it, it, you know, every week or every other week, I'll back up whatever work I have on a hard drive, and it would just sort of stay at home and stationary. So I would know worst case scenario, I'd lose like a day or two of work, but I'll have like the core stuff backed up. So that's thank you so much. What a gift! Thank you for that. Um, so where? If, if people want to learn more about the craft of comedy, uh, you know, to sort of if, if people feel like that's a calling, what's your advice to them? Where would they start? Is there something to read or certain people that they should, other than yourself, of course, are there other people that they should look to? What, 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 what kind of advice would you give to those questions? So if I would say if somebody's listening to this, like I've always been interested in comedy, um, I would say look right real quickly. Look on Facebook. See if there is a comedy group in your city, in your neighborhood and anywhere around you. And because open mics um, are things where comedians are practicing their craft, like coffee shops or restaurants, and they're happening typically, and especially now with such a boom globally, they're happening pretty frequently, if not at least once a week. When you find that, go, watch, study, understand what's going on. How do people sign up? How many people are on the list? What are the subjects that are covered? Could you do better? You know, like really just, this guy's talking about, you know, his bottle of beer he's been spending three minutes talking about a bottle of beer so just really understand the layout of of where comedy is um where the gym i would say the open mics are the gym for comedians where they they're working on their on their jokes then i would say 
watch the documentary on um, on Richard Pryor. I think it's Richard Pryor called Icon. I think that's the name of it. But it, t it really walks you through his whole life on how magical this particular art form is juxtaposed to a tumultuous upbringing, really understanding that whole component. I'd say start, start there and or message me. I love talking and I love being of service because I told you I've asked for mentorship from a number of very significant people that have impacted my life and they've all said no. And I think that's okay that they said no, but that's not who I am and I love to be of service. So Mona at MonaComedy.com or go to MonaComedy.com for my, my website. Hit me on it. Instagram. I will give you any and all. I'll sometimes I'll give you too much information, whether it's books I'm reading, the syllabus of the class I'm teaching, how to do, prepare three minutes to five minutes of material, how to get over the fears. Remember, this is the thing that I love to talk about. So you hit me up personally and I'm there. I mean, how did we get this interview? Well, I was just going to say, I attest uh, right. for people listening to that. I, I just reached out to you, I think, on Instagram. And, you know, within right. within 24 hours, we were in conversation and we set up a time and very responsive. Um, yeah. So thank you for being generous uh, with with yourself. And with your I'm time. in service. This is not I, Mona, have now I believe I'm complete. I I represent servitude. This is I'm to be of service. So you put me to work. <laughs> so. As we come, sort of, it's been about an hour. I, I want to be respectful of your time. I'd like to give uh, my guests the last, the last word. If, if, do you have any uh, last thoughts, pieces of advice, uh, suggestions, or even questions you want to leave us with? Uh, I'd like to turn it over to you to sort of, you know, help us wrap up this. Let's call it our first conversation. Okay, beautiful. Um, the thing that I that gives me such warmth in my heart and such hope. And, and I say this with major, I'm surrounding every word I say with a massive inshallah, is that we are coming to another 500 year cycle completion. And I believe that the United States is like Europe of the Renaissance age coming out instead of the dark ages, we're coming out of the light ages. And just like in Europe, the impact of slam is gonna revolutionize this continent as it did in Europe. If you look at Shakespeare, a lot of the a lot of the Renaissance have massive sprinkles of Islam all over it. And I believe that's what's happening in North America. And it's gonna happen. My the Imams that I know, especially one in LA, the conversions to Islam are massive and swift because in an age of massive confusion, when you get in touch with your source, your Allah, the vibration you start looking at the science of Islam, you look at how much art philosophy has tied to one connecting with their source, you're gonna see, I believe, inshallah, you're gonna see a conversion and a harmony of such waves of Muslims and or Islam in the United States. And it's gonna to be to our benefit, not our detriment. And I'm just super excited. I'm, I said, Allah, you made me an American Muslim. You gave me freedom of speech. You gave me the ability to travel the world in a split second. So thank you. Let me be of service. And to those that have ever even been questioning Islam or wondering, those that are Muslims that have gone to the wayside because their mommy and daddy have made it so difficult, take yourself to your local masjid and just listen. That's all. That's really the, the other thing is we Muslims that are already born Muslims, we need to take our religion back. We um, Women, our religion at times... Why some people feel like it's been hijacked. 
it's a beautiful, beautiful religion. And I love still trying to understand and I'll probably still try to understand it the rest of my life. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. That's a beautiful place to stop. Muna, thank you so much for your time, for your, <laughs> your thoughtful answers, um, for making us laugh. Uh, and I hope uh, you'll accept this is just like a pause and maybe we can pick up the conversation a few months down the line for a part two. Inshallah. Thank Inshallah. you. Bye. One more thing before you tune out. To help me stay focused and juggle the million things I'm doing, I put together a weekly email called Coexist Ruminations that highlights what I'm reading, working on, and thinking in four focus areas. Happiness, entrepreneurship, books, and Islam. If you'd like to receive these emails, which are 100% free, please go to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday to sign up. Take care.